Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And we have a wild episode number 200 of the Internet of Things podcast for you. Yay! Yay! All right. We are going to be talking about so many things. We've got a crazy story about connected devices and rental units and what kind of choices the residents get to make. We're going to be talking about Kevin and I both have gone on somewhat of a gadget and subscription cleanse, and we've got some new low-power Wi-Fi chips, Microsoft admitting a little defeat for Cortana, Uh, we've got the Abode Gen 2 gateway to talk about, and Amazon is making the Echo's natural language processing more accurate. Plus, some interesting rumors about AirPods and a fun service that's like Ift on steroids that Kevin has recently rediscovered and I wrote about so many years ago, and it's it's a really cool project. And that's Stacey's so, way of saying Kevin really needs to read Stacey's stuff more often. Basically, yes. That's a gentle whoosh. <laughs> All right. We also have our sponsor this week, Faircom, and it's Tree Edge IoT Database. You'll hear more about that during the ad segment. And our guest is my former colleague, Mike Wolf, who is now publisher of The Spoon and the founder of the Smart Kitchen Summit. He is going to give you guys excellent advice about what to demand in your next kitchen appliances. You're going to really want to stay tuned for some of the crazy stuff that you can soon get. So let's kick this off with a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Afero. Are you looking for an IoT platform? Find out why Kenmore and D-Link picked Afero. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market, 99% fewer support calls, and 10x higher activation rates. Plus, their customers can reuse 90% of their work from one project to the next. To learn more, visit afero.io. That's A-F-E-R-O dot I-O. All right, Kevin, let's kick it off this week with some tweets. I (laughs) don't know if you've seen this, but so Leslie Carhart, who tweets at at Hacks4Pancakes, that's the numeral four, tweeted last week about having to move because she is getting a smart lock in her apartment building. However, it is not just a smart lock. It is also a IoT hub and a connected thermostat. And all of this has to be connected to broadband. And apparently she doesn't have a way to opt out. So this was an interesting thread. We will link to it. But basically, Carhartt is a security professional. And she looked at this and was like, um, hey, no. <laughs> this is a big risk. I reached out to talk to her about this, but she said she did not feel comfortable because of she's in the middle of this and there might be legal or other ramifications. I totally get that. Yep. But I did find out more about the system that her apartment complex is using. It's and- mandating, basically. Right. It's mandating. It's a system from a company called Smart Rent. They're based in Phoenix, Arizona. They've raised $5 million in funding, actually, just as recently as November 2018. And they are using a couple of devices. Now, this I did not get from Leslie. So it's possible that they're pitching something completely new, but that seems unlikely because their website is full of this information. So they're pitching a hub made by Zapato. It's a Chinese smart home company. They've actually, people ask me about their stuff. It looks decent. And they're using a Yale lock that is for residential 
services. And then the modem inside the hub is from Huawei. And there's a thermostat and leak sensor. I'm not sure who makes the thermostat or the leak sensor. Let's dig into some of the issues here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because we've talked about, and we actually get many questions from renters about how to, you know, make their place smart. This is different in that the complex is mandating, this is what you're going to use and you have to have it. And there are a lot of issues here. Yes. The first issue I have is it's not opt out. Right. And that that is a problem for a multitude of reasons. But let's say even if it were opt out, I think there's actually some serious vetting issues that need to happen here. And there's also some questions I think about liability. So let's talk about the issues first, and then we'll go into liability and stuff like that. So the modem that they're using inside this device, and the fact that the modem has a Z-Wave hub in it, and it's been accused of being an attack vector for devices, and there hasn't been patches applied to it. So the people who live in these apartments, their thermostats, their leak sensor, and their locks are going to connect to this thing, but they actually don't own the hub, nor can they patch the hub if they want to. So anytime there's an issue or a vulnerability discovered, basically they're relying on both SmartRent and Zapato or the underlying hardware vendors providing service inside the Zapato hub to patch it. And as we all know, that doesn't always go well. Right. And to be honest, I mean, we kind of have the same issue to a degree in that, like, if my Wink hub has some kind of vulnerability, I'm relying upon Wink. But I also have the choice to say, I'm ditching Wink because you guys don't patch your stuff. And these folks won't have that option. Right. And a real estate management company who's installing this, they may be excellent at property management, but are they excellent at IT management? And so far, I'm not thinking they are. It's not Uh, going to be a priority for them necessarily to get this patched. And then if they do want it patched, they actually have to go to SmartRent and get them to lean on their vendors. It's a really long chain. And even aside from that, I mean, the fact that the modem itself is a Huawei modem, I personally, I'm not sold on using modems from Chinese companies as a major risk, but, you know, obviously it's a concern. Other people, including the U.S. government and other countries' governments, say don't be using these because we found a lot of phone homes to China sending data and so on and so forth. So that's an issue right there as well with the same device. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you're a government employee, you're not supposed to take your work home if you're in like a highly secure position. But even if you're not in a highly secure position, you do have to question, you know, oh man, is my modem doing something? And again, this is not something you choose. So we also have a GitHub repository on a hack of this particular hub. So there was a gentleman, Andrew McFerrin, who's basically got this hub in his house and he was like, oh, this is neat, but I don't want to use the smart rent software. I want to use Home Assistant. So he basically created an MQTT bridge and brought all the device capabilities into his own smart home program. Which is great, but I'm going to say 99% of the renters in this complex are not going to do that. And now let's move to the door lock. This is actually where I see the clearest problems, but also a reasonable solution it already exists. So SmartRent is apparently using a Yale door lock that is for residential, not for multifamily. And you guys may be thinking, eh, who cares? But multifamily units, so apartment buildings, they actually have different regulations around fire code and safety issues. So this is why a lot of us can't put smart locks in our apartment buildings because the 
apartment building has to have access and they have to be able to give the fire department access to every apartment. Right. With these residential locks, if you don't have centralized control, and it's unclear if smart rent is actually providing that, you don't actually have the capability to let someone in. And there's also a surprising lack of backups. So this product doesn't have a mechanical key. Just has a a fob, I guess, like a Bluetooth fob. It doesn't even have a fob. Hmm. It has no physical, it's a punch button or a phone access. So Yale recommends that you use this product in an environment where there are additional entry points into the dwelling. That may not be the case in an apartment building. In fact, it's likely not the case. Right. And also, if the power goes out or the internet goes out, the lock doesn't work. Yeah, this is why I guess it I wouldn't. Feel like, yeah, manual keys are a big deal. You may not have it on you, but at least in an apartment building, you can go downstairs and, you know, the super will give you the key. So that's a little ishy. Yeah. So those are some of the things. And if you think about using Z-Wave with an apartment building, there is a possibility of interference. There's also concerns about ADA access. So American with Disabilities Act says, you know, everything has to be accessible for people. And I'm not 100% clear on how this might affect people. But, you know, it's worth asking the questions. I mean, if you are blind, you can't punch in your keypad, you know, code. That's not easily, right? These these locks do not have the ability, like they light up, but it's not like they have braille on them. So that's an issue. And then there's an interesting thing that I hadn't really thought a lot about, but Shabbat compatibility. So Orthodox mm-hmm. Jews follow Shabbat, which is resting on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. And in that time, you can't use electricity. You can't do a lot of things. There are lots of rules. I've had a couple of friends who are Orthodox, and it's always really intriguing to learn about this. You're like, oh man, that's that's hardcore. So if you think about having an electronic lock, it may not be Shabbat compatible. This is not foreign to people in the smart home industry. Actually, Whirlpool has a Shabbat feature on their connected washers and dryers, which I thought was kind of neat. So I don't know if that's something the smart rent people are thinking about, but you know, it's something you have to think about, especially if something's mandatory. Yeah. Yeah. This it's a unique situation because I've never heard of a mandatory smart apartment, you know, in this capacity. And I totally understand where Leslie's coming from because of that factor alone. And I mean, she was kind of, well, maybe she wasn't joking, but I mean, when she first tweeted this, she's like, I guess I have to move. And that's kind of when, when I saw it, I, was, I laughed. And then you brought this up again before the show. And there's a really long thread about this. And like, she's serious. She may have to move because she can't or does not want to abide by this mandatory nature of these devices, these particular devices, what it would mean for her everyday usage. I guess she has to supply the power and the internet as well. So she's paying for that. Yeah, not good. Yeah. And I will say, so looking at this, I talked to lots of smart apartment people. I've actually interviewed the CEOs of two companies that provide smart capabilities for apartment buildings, Felicity Mormon, who's at Stratus, and Say Pike, who is at IOTUS. And they're actually the ones who helped educate me many years ago about some of the requirements with connected homes in apartments. And those are voluntary systems. And they do a lot. Like I had an hour-long conversation about locks with Felicity. I mean, this this is not something that should be taken lightly. And this feels very ominous. And it feels like not the beginning of a backlash, but this could create a backlash against connectivity and connected devices in general if it's not rolled out the right way. And I will also say and tie this back to what I saw at CES and even my interview with Mike Wolf later on, we're actually seeing a lot of companies install de facto Wi-Fi or connectivity in their products. And there won't be a non-connected option. 
And I mean, are we holding back the future? I don't know, but we still have so many data and privacy and security issues that I think it's okay that people are like, yeah, I don't trust this yet. You know, it's not like a, to me, it's not like a Luddite, knee-jerk Luddite reaction, you know? Right. No, it's, there should always be an option for a non-smart device. I mean, even in the future, however far you want to take it out. I don't know. I mean, you can't buy a car today without, you know, certain electronic safety features in those. I mean, my mom is very anti-digitization of cars, but she won't buy a new car right now because she doesn't want all of those electronic features. But some of them are mandated. True, but I mean, those are she's like, a little those are safety features. You know, these are not safety features. These are convenience features. Well, some of them are and some of them aren't. So a leak sensor, I can see why apartment would want that. I actually had my apartment flood because the apartment above mine had a burst pipe. And, you know, that's, I can see a legitimate reason why an apartment community might want that in there. Mm-hmm. But that's very different than mandating a connected lock or a hub that the resident has to do. So there are other ways to do this, but I, yeah, I'm with you. All right. So we're not going to solve this today, but stay tuned because hopefully we'll find out a little bit more. I've reached out to Smart Rent and its investment team to try to figure this out. And maybe, maybe we'll get answers. Maybe she doesn't have to move. That would be nice. Yes. Breaking your lease is always a pain. And then proving that you're not breaking your lease or that the lease terms have changed is always a pain. Yeah. Uh, Okay. That's how we feel about that. So good luck, Leslie. Good luck anyone who actually has to deal with this. Actually, if you have to deal with this, you should drop us a line and tell us because I'm very curious how these things are working out for people. Okay. Speaking of... Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo? No, we haven't spoken of her yet. I was going to say, you know, (laughs) I don't know what we're speaking of. You guys, I'm sick. Worst worst segue ever. Worst segue ever. Speaking of that, (laughs) this week, or actually last week, I was inspired by the life-changing magic of tidying up in the Marie Kondo show on Netflix to do a gadget cleanse. I wrote about it in the newsletter, but I'm going to give you the brief thing. You guys know I'm moving in roughly six months, five months now. And I was like, we're about to put our house on the market. And they're like, what's going to convey? What are you going to leave on the walls? And I was like, I don't know. So I did the condo style thing where I shoved all of my connected devices or their boxes if they were installed in the wall. And I shoved them all on the couch and I touched them and I said, hey, do you spark joy? Do I actually use you? Do you irritate me? And I decided which to keep and which I didn't want to keep. And it was really helpful because prior to this, I was trying to figure out what to put in there and I just couldn't come up with a system. I kept waffling back and forth like, I don't know do I want to keep this? Do I want to uninstall it? Would a new person coming into the house find this incredibly complicated and never use it? Because that would be a waste and possibly a vulnerability. So the results are keeping the connected thermostats on the wall. So those will convey with the house. My Lutron switches will convey with the house, as will the Lutron hub that monitors them. What else? My beloved Delta Touch 2.0 with Madam A installed is going to stick around in the house. I know. I can't see a reason to like, I mean, yeah. You love that thing. I do love that thing. But I love it so much that in my new house, not my rental house that I'm going to be staying in for a year, but in my new new house, I will actually get one of those again. So that stays in the house. The MyQ stays in the house. That's the Chamberlain garage door opener. I will probably buy a new one, might even buy a new one of those for my rental house. It's unclear because who knows what my rental house is going to, what that situation will be. I'm going to take all my Hue light bulbs with me though. So that goes away. And I'm probably going to install a Lutron switch actually where the Hue bulbs were just to make sure that, you know, the main living room area of the house has 
a connected light, basically. Right. It would be a consistent experience. I also have a bunch of different connected lights in my house, and I'm getting rid of all of the ones that are not Lutron because I don't want somebody to have to like install a bunch of apps, basically. Right. Here's the Leviton app. Here's the Wemo app. Because remember, when they come in, they're going to bring their own Madam A or Google or nothing. Right. And the Lutron lights work even if you have nothing. They're still wonderful dimming lights. It's just nice. And if they decide they want them to work with something else, they work with everything. HomeKit, Google, Madam A. The thermostats, the Nest will work with Google and Madam A. It will not work with HomeKit. Door locks. I didn't keep any of the connected door locks because my connected door locks are all Z-Wave. And one was a Nest Yale lock, but that was a review unit, so I had to send that back. So I decided nothing Z-Wave or Zigbee would stay because I don't want them to have to deal with the hub. And finally, the connected doorbell. I talked to my realtor and he said a connected doorbell would be good. I had to give back the Nest doorbell, but I did reinstall my August doorbell. So they have that. And then I left the normal doorbell in case they want that. So that's basically what will convey with my home and how I kind of came to that process. Yeah. So they'll, like I said, they'll have like a more consistent, cohesive experience because you've kind of outfitted the house and leaving, you're leaving the house with Lutron and everything else would work without a hub. So, I mean, that's a nice selling point and yeah, you'll have to replace some things, but hopefully it is appealing to a potential buyer. Yeah. And stay tuned because in a couple, what, in six months or so, I'll be talking about, oh, here's how I outfitted my rental house. Yeah. (laughs) And it's funny that you wrote this up and took this plunge, which is actually similar to when you, oh, I don't know, about a year and a half ago, you redid your smart home completely. Remember? You went through all your devices. I did my other gadget cleanse. Spring cleaning, I think it was. (laughs) Yeah. But the difference is, you know, it was what did you want to use versus now what are you going to leave behind? And you got me thinking of a subscription cleanse in the smart home. And I've already started it because I have had a Nest camera in my front window of my home, even though the door to my house is actually on the side of the house because we have an end unit in the townhomes here. And it just looks out at the driveway. And it's been well worth the subscription price because when our car got hit last summer, I guess it was, we captured it on video. I had the subscription service. I could go back and look at all my video. And, you know, I got $1,500, which is what the repair bill was from the offending driver's insurance company. No questions asked because I had evidence. But do I really need to pay like $10 a month for that? I don't think I do. And this is not a solution that everybody would do. And I totally get that. But I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to save that money and I'm going to throw an SD card or micro SD card in a wise cam, which is a $20 camera. I don't need alerts for out there. I only need that to see after the fact if something happened. So I don't need a subscription for that was my thought. And I canceled the Nest subscription on that camera and then actually added a Nest subscription. So it's pretty much a wash in terms of savings onto the Nest Hello doorbell because I do want the history of that in case somebody like is trying to mess with the front door or anything like that where packages get taken that sit out there. So it's worth paying for that. But for any area that I just want to see after the fact and go back in time, I don't need a subscription with a Wisecam and an SD card. So, and I'm going to continue, I think, paying the Canary subscription because that covers multiple cameras and is kind of like if somebody breaks into the house, then I can capture all that video from two different angles. So, but I'm really starting to take a hard look at that. And I know how you feel. We've talked about subscriptions in the past. I'm not a fan, but you raise a good point from a business continuity perspective for these companies. So I'm not going anti-subscription. 
but I'm trying to think about where does it make sense? Where must I have one? Whereas where do I really not need one? Well, in how many subscriptions as part of this cleanse, did you tally up how much you spend a month on subscriptions? Well, at a higher level I did, but they were not just smart home subscriptions. They were also music and video services. Ah, did you get rid of any of those? I didn't get rid of any. However, I have saved money because even though I'm almost an AARP card member officially, I am back in school. And now that I have an EDU address, I'm getting Hulu, Showtime, and Spotify for $5 a month as a student, which is far cheaper than non-students. Yeah. Spotify, is it the family or individual plan? It's individual, but that's okay. Oh, yeah. No, that's still like $20 savings right there. Yep. Yep. Um, So uh, I I save on that. And there's other subscription deals I'm looking at as a student as well. But yeah, so I'm just trying to figure out, you know, how much I really need to like outlay for things I must have from a subscription standpoint in general. I like it. All right. Well, keep on keeping on, my friend. We'll see. Let's go to news. There are new low-power Wi-Fi chips from Silicon Labs, and this is exciting because I have been skeptical that Wi-Fi can get to a low enough power point. We're talking, for example, of getting rid of Z-Wave and Zigbee stuff in my house, and one of the reasons is that requires a hub, but one of the reasons they're so prevalent is because they're super low power and they're mesh. So they're extra resilient and they don't, you know, you get long battery life. So I'm always excited about things like mesh for Bluetooth and now low power Wi-Fi. So this is half the power of existing Wi-Fi, according to Slab. Now, there are a lot of caveats when we talk about radios and power consumptions. There's things like, hey, is the RF environment really noisy? That means like, are there lots of devices trying to transmit? Because that makes it more power intensive to transmit signals. Or is it farther away from the hub? Because that also requires more power. It basically has to, quote unquote, shout louder to be heard. So you've got to think about all of those things. And, you know, so these are benchmarked under kind of ideal performance situations. So your real mileage may vary. But we are seeing Wi-Fi in battery-powered situations at CES. So we saw the new Schlage Wi-Fi powered lock. Hampton Products has their new Wi-Fi power array lock. So there's a lot happening here. And with these new chipsets, there should be, hopefully, even more. Woo! Yeah, and I'm interested from a different perspective. And, I, you know, I'm probably being overly optimistic here. I know these are for IoT applications, but I still want to see Wi-Fi headphones that can connect to the cloud for assistant. Not this, hey, I put an assistant in your ear, but it has to connect to your phone over Bluetooth. Yeah, you keep dreaming, my friend. I know. I, maybe, one can hope. One maybe can hope. for our 300th episode, we'll be talking about that. <laughs> That's two years away. Yeah. All right. Microsoft, they admit a small defeat for Cortana. Oh, sigh. They're pulling a Bixby. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> Microsoft, it's interesting, you know, with the whole smart speaker space, we don't see too many speakers with Cortana in there. And I have a feeling we're not going to see many more. And that's because Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, basically said that we don't really see Cortana as a competitor to Madam A or the Google Assistant. We really think it should be a skill that should work with those assistants. And that's, to me, a small bit of defeat in terms of the smart speaker space. And it also means that they're going to have to work more with Google and Amazon to do further integrations 
with Cortana. And Amazon actually has, which is promising for them, but I don't know. I don't think it's going to happen with Google. To me, this is so fascinating because Microsoft at the cloud level, so it's Azure Cloud, competes very heavily with AWS and less so with Google's cloud because Microsoft is number two in this space. And I'm just like, that is so interesting to me. This like, at one level, we're friends. At another level, we compete utterly. Yeah, that's the way it is in this market. So we will say goodbye to Cortana on devices, possibly hello to telling Madam A to activate Cortana to do something on my Windows PC. All right, let's talk about Abode. This is the security system. It's excellent. I have heard from so many people who have this that they love it. And this is the Abode Gen 1. But now there's the Abode Gen 2 gateway. This will begin shipping next month. And it features 4G cellular backup. It has Z-Wave in it. And those are the big new things. But Kevin will tell you a bit more about what the heck this is. Yeah, so the Abode system, if you haven't heard about it, it's really more of a, it's a hub as well as like a security type system because they make motion sensors and door window sensors and such. So as you said, it also has 4G backup. So it's next gen for them. People who bought the first gen, which generally have been very happy with it, they don't have to pay the full price for it because the full price just for the basic bundle is $279 with the gateway. And it goes up from there if you want to add like their Connect bundle or their Secure bundle, you can pay up to $360. But you can get the gateway if you're a previous abode Gen 1 owner for $199. So it's going to save you $80. You're not going to have a transition from the old device to the new one in a sense because you have to manually re-enroll all your connected devices. So there's no automatic setup, unfortunately, with the new one. But if you have a Gen 1 device and you love it, you don't have to upgrade. They're going to keep supporting both Gen 1 and Gen 2 devices. So This is true. This is true. They're bringing better Z-Wave connectivity to the Gen 2. So, I mean, that's one possible reason you might want to upgrade. And the 4G cellular backup is also another reason. But if you don't need those, right, you can just stick with what you got. On a related note, there's no announcement that they have HomeKit support yet with Abode. They do say that they are still working with Apple and they plan to have additional news to announce soon as we continue to work with the Apple HomeKit team. So it sounds like a a near certainty that's going to happen soon. I don't know. Ring made similar announcements and we've been waiting for a year and a half on that. Well, they also had an acquisition. That's true. Okay. Okay, fine. (laughs) All right. Let's talk about quick news bits or more quick news bits. AirPod 2 with rumored health sensors. I am excited about this because I believe that, well, I don't just believe this. It's proven fact that you can get a lot of information from your ears. You can get high quality brain data, high quality heart rate data, high quality galvanic skin response data. Ooh, big word. And you can get good step data, actually. No doubt about it. And we have talked about this before. You're bullish on this. I'm kind of bearish on this because I have an Apple Watch, which has all those types of sensors, or most of them. I do not have the Apple Watch 4 with the ECG, but I don't want that, so that's fine. And I also do have the current AirPods, which don't have any sensors whatsoever, but I wear them when I run, and they're great for streaming music from my watch. If I have the watch, I have no interest in AirPod 2 with health sensors because I already have the health sensors. And additionally, if I'm only capturing data when I wear the headphones, it's not going to be like all day data because you're not going to wear these all day. So these would be good for people who maybe don't have an Apple Watch, I guess is 
Or Apple maybe they Spot. just want to track, like, it's another way maybe to track, like, your runs or something. If you don't want an Apple Watch, because those are very expensive, you pop the earpods in to go running and you can grab data. I will also, and I'm with you on the AirPod thing. I'm kind of like, eh, do we need that? No. But at CES, Starkey, the hearing aid company, they actually showed off something really cool, which is their new Livio hearing aid that has a lot of sensors in it already. And they're actually tracking steps, but they're also doing things like fall detection now with these. And a hearing aid is something that you actually leave in almost all the time. True. So I thought that was... That's one of the reasons that I'm so bullish and excited about this, because I see a future where we get a convergence of earphones and things like medical hearing devices, and suddenly you have these things basically in your ear all the time, you know, performing a useful function and having that battery life. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see. So let's talk about Node Red. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yes, let's talk about Node Red, which I thought was a brand new thing, but Stacy correctly informed me that she wrote about it in 2013, and we talked about it at least once before in the show. My favorite was the fact that we've had this conversation before, like a year ago. <laughs> yeah, it's like, check out Node Red, and I'm like, oh, it is awesome. I have checked it out. Yeah, Kevin's getting old; he needs a memory upgrade. But for those who don't remember, such as me, talking about Node Red, it is very interesting and worth a look. If you go to NodeRed.org, it's Basically, I call it if this then that on steroids because it has so many usages, so many integration points. It's rather technical. It's far more technical than if this then that. And yet it's not at the same time because it's a drag and drop interface, almost like it's like if Stringify. Anybody's from, like Stringify. I was even gonna say like Scratch, the oh, MIT yeah. programming language where you pull blocks in to make, you know, to create programs. You kind of flowchart out what you want your devices to do, how you want them to communicate and send messages, notifications, and you can connect things to databases. I mean, it's, you could go hog wild. And the only reason it, it hit my radar again today is because somebody on the Reddit home automation subgroup had completely outfitted a many, many devices, his entire home with Node Red, and he had all these flowcharts and all. I was like, whoa, this is cool. So yes, we have talked about it before. Node is not specifically new, but... It's worth a look if you're looking for a different way to automate your home automation, your smart home. Yes. And you can run it locally, like on a Raspberry Pi, or you can run it in the cloud through AWS, Microsoft, Azure, etc. So it's another option. And you can use it with Home Assistant. So Home Assistant is one of those downloadable, it's like OpenHab, HomeBridge, it's a downloadable thing. You can run it on a Pi and run all your devices. And you can actually use Node-RED on top of that and have an easier way to program your devices on Home Assistant. So, and it also, I should say, it isn't just for the smart home. It's actually very popular and becoming more popular in the industrial IoT world. So we're seeing some people in the OT world who may be more familiar with this type of user interface trying to adopt it for setting rules around, you know, smart buildings and also smart factories. So this is, I mean, it's a pretty robust platform. It was developed at IBM way back. I wrote about it in 2013, as Kevin said. And it's it's a good software system. I like it. All right. So I think that covers a lot of stuff for this week. We've run the gamut. Let's go now to our IoT podcast listener hotline. This week's hotline is sponsored by Schlage. Don't miss your chance to win a Schlage Connect smart deadbolt. Now, it is Zigbee certified and has Amazon Key compatibility, so you can upgrade your smart home with the safety, simplicity, and style of Schlage. And 
we did not have, for all of the month of January, a giveaway. But I'm changing that as of today. So everyone who has called so far in January is now entered to win a Google Home. This is an opened Google Home that this is part of my device cleanse. So if you don't want it, that's okay. I'm not offended at all. But if you do want to be entered to win, you still have a few days left. We'll go up to January 31st at midnight. And all you have to do is call us on our voicemail at 512-623-7424 and leave a message. So let's get to this week's voicemail. This one is from John. Hi, Stacy and Kevin. Our name is John, and I'm calling regarding Wi-Fi smart lights. I'm interested in your recommendation for the brightest normal, like A19 size or 100 watt, 150 watt type size bulbs. It seems to me that there's not too many very bright ones out there, and I'm particularly interested in ones that are hubless or our Wi-Fi bulbs themselves that don't need a hub. Seems that most of them are topping out at like the 60 watt or maybe 75 watt range, and they're all funky looking. But I'm looking for a soft white dimmable situation, and I'm also curious if maybe it's smarter or better to get a smart switch and then just use regular. So this is an interesting question because most of the smart bulbs that we found pretty much max out at like a 75 watt equivalent. LifeX seems to be the brightest in terms of lumens. And when we started looking for 100 to 150 watt replacements, we came up short. There are definitely LED bulbs that would... We did find a couple, but we would not recommend them because they are from random, random manufacturers that... This is true. This is true. Folks that we're not very familiar with, I guess we should say. Yes. So your thought about getting a smart switch is probably the way to go. And because of that, you're going to save on the cost of your bulbs because the bulbs won't be smart. Your switch would then, you know, obviously cost you maybe $40, $50, but you can find many, many LED bulbs that are in the range of anywhere from 15 to at least 1600 lumens. If you want to go with the inexpensive route, EcoSmart has 100 watt replacement LED bulbs. They are basically a price of $10.27 for a two-pack. So that's where you're saving your money since the smarts aren't there. Cree also makes a 100-watt replacement LED bulb, but they're going to be a little more expensive. You're going to pay about $13 for a dimmable LED from them. We definitely found all dimmables because you mentioned dimmables. So there was one non-dimmable. I'll just mention it in case you decide you don't need that for every single light. Philips does make a 100-watt replacement non-dimmable LED with about 1,500 lumens, and that'll cost you about $12.97 for a two-pack, so the same as one Cree bulb. So you're obviously paying a little bit more for the dimmable factor if you want that, but you've got a bunch of options there. I would go with the switch, quite honestly. There's just, if you need that kind of brightness and the dimmability factor, you might as well save money on the bulbs and just put the switches in. Yeah, I agree. And having bulbs that bright, And having it be dimmable is probably really awesome because it's not all the time you want multiple light bulbs giving you 100 to 150 watts, right? Sometimes you want to dial it back a little. Yeah, these are all soft whites as well. So just we put that into the equation as well. And Stacey, you're more of a light switch, a smart switch person than I am. So what are your favorites and what are the costs? Just so John has an idea. Sure. So I love the Lutron. But if you want it to work with like assistance, you're going to need a hub. So you may not want to go that route. Those are about 55 bucks per switch. The other options are Leviton. 
And those are about $40 to $50, but they don't require hub. They're Wi-Fi switches. Wemo has a Wi-Fi switch that works really well, but I don't love the fact that it's really bright. It has all these lights on it, so it's not great for like a bedroom. And those are kind of... Brilliant is a light panel, but it's overkill if you just want light. It also acts kind of a smart home hub. So it's got Madame A built in. It integrates with Hue. It integrates with all this other stuff. It's a neat concept, but it's a lot of work to program, and it may be overkill for what you want. And it's far more expensive as well. So with Brilliant, a one-gang switch costs $300. For the control, a two-gang switch is going to cost $350, and it goes up from there. But... You can use the fancy capacitive touchscreen on it to control your locks, your thermostat, your music, all kinds of stuff. You're paying more, but you're getting more in that case. So if if John wants to add features, he has that option then. Yeah, but John, I don't know if you need to go that far. (laughs) I mean, if you want to go that far, it's a decent option. It's your money. So, all right. Well, I feel that we have reached a good closing point. Remember, you have until January 31st to give us a call at 512-623-7424 and enter to win a Google Home that has been used. This feels kind of lame, but... Stacy's trash is your treasure. Exactly! Thanks, Marie Kondo. Stay tuned now for our guest this week, Michael Wolf of The Spoon and the founder of the Smart Kitchen Summit. He's going to be talking about connected kitchens and the features you should look for in your next big appliances. Hey, everyone. We are taking a break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is database provider Faircom. And we have Evaldo Oliveira, who is here to talk to us about Faircom's new C-Tree Edge database. Hello, Evaldo. You built a database specifically for the IoT called C-Tree Edge. Why? Well, C-Tree Edge is an IoT database that was designed with edge computing in mind. So I think the main focus, or to answer your question why, was really to try to help solving the problem of bridging the gap that exists today between information technology, or IT, with operational technology, or OT. These are two roles that they have been coexisting for a while already, but not really in real time. So this is really what IoT is about, connecting the sheer amount of operational sensors that are producing thousands of data points per second, together with the business intelligence provided by the information technology systems. And a database is really critical for that. Okay. And how does a database help with that? Well, first, by enabling the implementation of uh, more sophisticated architectures, like integrating edge computing with the cloud, for example. This can be done in real time using C3 Edge database replication features. But you can also have topologies like chains, hubspoke, or even many-to-many replications with filters to separate which data will be sent where. It's almost like a full real-time ETL for sensors. You connect them all with the cloud or, or your data center and have all its data when and where you need it. Our database takes care of that for you. Then there's also the way you store and process the data. Citri Edge is a multi-model database in the sense that it provides both SQL and NoSQL interfaces for your application. Edge computing requires fast, high throughput. And for that, Citri Edge gives you the flexibility of the schema-less key value store interfaces. You can drop hundreds of thousands of data points per second without having to worry with the extra latency introduced by relationships or complex SQL queries in a traditional relational database, for example. But as I mentioned, Citri Edge is also a SQL database. So you can integrate your business intelligence, your machine learning, or any other data processing system that requires uh, standard interfaces and query the data in real time. This can be done directly on the Edge or on your central repository, for example. And what about security? 
Oh, that's a very good point. Uh, Citrix Edge is much more than just a database. It provides, for example, data security with advanced encryption. It supports most of the Edge operating systems like Raspbian, Windows IoT, or Ubuntu Core. And it comes with an embedded MQTT broker that enables you to integrate your IoT application without having to write a single line of code. Not to mention the support to IoT platforms like ThingWorks from PTC. That sounds great, Evaldo. So where can our listeners find out more information about Citrix Edge? We have actually a great video with a live demonstration of how to use Citrix Edge to collect and process sensor data in real time. It's an application that we developed on a Raspberry Pi that you can easily do by yourself if you want. It's available on faircom.com slash IoT if you'd like to watch it. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. Today's guest is Michael Wolf, who is founder of the Smart Kitchen Summit and publisher of The Spoon. He is also a former colleague of mine from GigaOM, and he's now on to bigger, better, smarter things. So, hey Michael, how are you doing? Hey, good, Stacy. Thanks for having me on. Man, thanks for coming. So, I love Smart Kitchen gadgets. It's like my favorite thing in the world. Actually, it is not my favorite thing in the world. My favorite thing in the world is probably my NanoLeaf lights, but they don't do anything. So next up is the kitchen. We just got back from CES. What I saw was a lot of the big appliance brands are now actually offering real connected devices in the kitchen, not just, you know, things that are Wi-Fi connected, but actually trying to build smarts into it. I saw fridges that had cameras in it. I saw lots of ovens with, you know, AI that could help you cook and What are the big trends that you're seeing from the major manufacturers? Yeah, I think you had it right. One of the things I wrote about for my outlook for this year was we would see the big appliance makers finally integrating intelligence features, things like cameras and kind of things that understand what's in the cook. So I think you saw that across the board, whether that's Whirlpool had a really big couple announcements. They had their countertop oven, essentially what I would call almost like a June-like oven. They also had their smart hub oven. I forget the exact name of it, where it actually had augmented reality on top of the oven where you, as you cook, you could put stuff in and then it kind of does an overlay video screen. They also had this really kind of interesting modular oven from KitchenAid that allows you to put steam or like a grill in there. You also saw this from Samsung. They're entering their fourth generation of the family hub. Samsung's been going at it for a while now with the refrigerator. I'm sure you've talked about quite a bit. And for the first time, really, their family hub refrigerator actually has food recognition capability. So they've had the camera in there for a while and they've really touted this as, hey, if you're shopping, you could see what you forgot. That's okay, and that's kind of interesting, but like the ability to actually recognize food potentially opens up some other interesting applications. So I think what we saw from the big appliance makers is moving beyond this idea of just like adding Wi-Fi and app control to actually adding more intelligent features around cooking, like machine vision, like GE building in the Heston capabilities where the countertop cooktop is actually talking to the actual cookware. So all these different things together showed me that the big appliance makers are really kind of making a push into the kitchen and adding more technology. Okay, so then my question to you becomes, as a consumer, let's pretend that I am building a house, because one day soon I will be, and I'm looking at all of this stuff. I feel like there's still several ecosystems. There's like Whirlpool's got their Yumly stuff. You mentioned GE and Heston Q. So how is that working in the kitchen right now? I think we're still early stages, right? So even though the big guys are getting in, we are still in these worlds where there's separate islands of technology and nothing really interoperates all that well together. You have guys like Init that are trying to essentially act as an operating system, if you will. You mentioned Yummy. That's really kind of Whirlpool's play to kind of build your own. You know, they're a big appliance maker. They said, hey, why don't we just build our entire walled garden of technology because Whirlpool? But I think that 
that's kind of the challenge of early stage markets. We saw the same thing in the smart home where nothing really kind of worked together. I think that's kind of the stage we're at with the kitchen. And so I think the challenge is moving forward is like, how do you get these things to interoperate? So I think Amazon Echo, Heiji, I think those are kind of the de facto interoperability layers where they basically kind of circumvented and circumnavigated what the kind of more smart kitchen technologies or smart home technologies were trying to be. Stepping back into your question of if you're trying to build a home, I still think it's so early that I don't think a lot of people who are building homes and cost a lot of money to build a kitchen. If you're redoing your kitchen, it's like a $50,000 thing. The challenger is like, okay, what do I put in there from a technology perspective? A lot of the stuff isn't available yet. So all people are really thinking is, hey, I want a sub-zero fridge or I want like the GE cafe line. They're not necessarily thinking about technology. I think if you're moving into a new home, you're thinking maybe about smart home, but I just don't think people are there right now thinking about, I want really advanced technology in my kitchen. That's fair. It is early. And let's just be selfish just for me, since I have you and you're an expert. In like 18 months, I'm going to be moving into a new home, buying new appliances for it. So maybe not which companies I should look at, but what are the technologies that you think will be there that I should be like, I will not settle for anything less than this in my kitchen? Hmm. Well, I don't know if it's too early, but I think it'd be really cool if I was building a new kitchen, a new home to have the wireless power consortium technology in my countertops. Like that would be really cool to have that inductive kind of power transfer technology. You can basically have a Qi power pad in your countertop. That would be pretty cool. I think it may be too early. 18 months might be kind of kind of close. I know that they're trying to push it because all these big guys are really pushing hard to get more technology forward offerings in their high end. And Whirlpool is actually pushing it down towards their kind of mainstream brand. So like a lot of these guys actually start off on the high end products and then they move it into their mainstream. If you look at GE, it's a GE cafe line, pretty high end. The challenge is you may have to have a mixed brand type of kitchen if you want like the most advanced cooktop, the most advanced like if you want like steam oven, like you want the most advanced refrigerator, you may just have like this hodgepodge of brands. Because like right now, you can't really look at any one brand and say, hey, they have this great lineup across all the built-in technologies that have great smart technology, really advanced. They're all at different stages. Let me break it down maybe this way. So uh, you don't have to tell me the brands, but like, what should I look for in my refrigerator? You've mentioned cameras, maybe food recognition. So let's do that. Tell me which are the advanced technologies I should need in particular appliances. So we'll start with the fridge. I mean, Samsung's been the most aggressive there, right? And I think LG has been there as well, really trying to make the refrigerator the showcase in the kitchen of like more advanced technology. We're on the fourth generation family have refrigerator. Like I said, this is the first year that their cameras inside really understand what the food is. I think that's pretty interesting. The challenge for me is like, I step back and say, how committed is Samsung long-term? Do I want to spend $4,000 on a Samsung family hub? And will that have a 10-year life cycle? It seems like they're really committed. It's like they've been going at this for four or five years now. It seems like they're going to be there. Everything from the second generation on upgrades to the latest software. So if I were looking at a fridge, you know, you probably go with Samsung or LG. I would definitely want cameras inside and Wi-Fi connectivity. Other than that, like there's nothing really from the mainstream technology perspective that you can get much more than that. There's not the electronic nose built into these fridges yet, right? There's nothing like that. Some of these guys are thinking about putting like warming defrosters in their fridges. So having like beyond freezing actually going into warming, but that's not available yet. Okay. And then let's talk about my oven. What should I demand in my smart oven in 18 months? I would love to have an oven with a cool screen on it, whether it's a television or like a monitor or like an augmented reality translucent screen like you saw with like Whirlpool. I think that'd be really cool. I think you've grown to like your June. So having something that recognizes what's inside and kind of programs the cook, 
and monitors the cook. I think that would be pretty cool. And that technology is definitely moving into the built-in appliances. I would demand that. I like the idea of modularity. You know, KitchenAid had this modular new oven that they announced that you'd be able to add steam functionality or add like a grill functionality in there or like a cooking stone. So is that inside the oven? It's inside the oven and it's basically add-ons. So there's actually like an interface at the back of the oven. You could plug these things in. Huh. Okay, cool. My stovetop. I would go with induction. I know that induction cooking isn't as popular in the U.S., but I think that there's so much more you can do. Your kid is less likely to get burned or there's less likely for a fire to start. And you can do things like high-precision cooking, like with the Heston, right? So if you buy like the GE oven with the Heston technology built in, you could do this guided cooking or high-precision cooking. You can't necessarily do that with fire. Let's see. Oh, how about my dishwasher? That's a great question. I would, I kind of love these little countertop dishwashers. Now, I know you're doing a big built-in kitchen with like these really kind of high-end appliances, but like the Tetra is going to be shipping, I think, by mid-year. And there's another one, I forget the name of it, there's another smart countertop dishwasher that actually uses like a fraction of the water and allows you to do a much smaller wash load. I really like those things. I just think it's such a smart idea. When you say countertop, because I was envisioning, so I'm on the market for those drawers that pull out. Yeah. So the dishwasher drawers that are not full-size dishwashers, because I have a family of three, so it's not like two of those would do just fine for me. But what are you talking about? Is this an actual countertop? Yeah. So Heatworks announced in 2018 at CES the Tetra dishwasher. It was that really cool dishwasher design that had that frog design. Design company Frog made it. It looks really sexy. It uses a gallon of water and can do two place settings. So it's a much smaller ecological footprint. Like it wastes way less water and way less energy. And it also has, if you're living out of like an RV or if you're living in a dorm, you can actually have a dishwasher. All right. I'm seeing these. Okay. And then let's see. I feel like there's tons of countertop appliances that people can just buy. Those feel great for like a retrofit. Are there any standout, you know, countertop appliances that you're like, oh my gosh, if you buy a dumb coffee maker, you're making a huge mistake? You know, coffee's like a sore spot with me because I've been waiting on the spin coffee machine for a while, but there are some interesting connected coffee makers coming out. I'm waiting for a Kelvin coffee roaster. One of the things I've been waiting to do is actually trying to roast tech coffee in the home. And there's a coffee roaster called Kelvin that should be shipping this year. They're actually running a little late, but that could be kind of fun. What's your coffee drinking habits? Are you someone who drinks every day? Oh, I have a Super Automatica coffee maker that grinds and then brews it. But I, I've been looking at the Bono Verde. I'm not going to lie. That thing looks amazing to me. We try that out. The problem is, do you really need to have it all in one appliance, right? I think the yes. roast, grind, brew. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. It's like, I think they added one feature too much. I think the roasting built into an appliance that also grinds and brews is maybe too much. Okay, you're saying that's overkill. Well, I tasted the coffee and I was just like, I am so here for this. But okay, we will not worry about that. Let's talk about any other countertop appliances that I should be like, this must have intelligence. No, I mean, I don't think you want to add intelligence for intelligence sake. I think steam is underrated. You know, Wilson Rothman of the Wall Street Journal has the same thing. He said it at our event, like, that's a category he's waiting to pop, waiting for, because steam is just makes your food taste so much better. And so you saw Tovala come out with their generation two, this, like about a couple months ago, I did a review of it. I really like the taste of the food. This is an oven, you guys. It's a, yeah, Toval is a countertop oven, kind of like the June. It's not as smart as the June, but it has steam built in. And it's actually a little bit cheaper than the June. There are some, like I said, I mentioned the Whirlpool one that actually has steam capability they can add as a feature. 
I do think if you're moving into new house, I think steam is like something you should really look at because it just makes the food taste so much better. All right. Induction and steam. I'm going to keep that in mind. So also with the Samsung family fridge, for example, there's a screen on it. GE just showed a downdraft kind of system with a 27 inch screen on it. I feel like I saw something else with a screen on it. And I was kind of like, oh, I was an oven. So let's talk about where the hub in the kitchen should be or where we need all these screens, because I certainly don't need every appliance to come with a really expensive, beautiful screen that I'm just going to get grease all over. <laughs> I mean, I think that Amazon and Google with their smart displays, that was really smart. Because if you look at the kitchen, like it's where we spend so much time, it's the gathering spot and where we're largely making food purchasing decisions. And you can't do all that as much as like Amazon wants you to do the voice shopping. You're not going to do out at least I'm not filling out a complete shopping list. So I think that this idea of having these smart displays on countertops really is smart. And you're seeing those really take off. What appliances should take them built in? I just don't know if it's going to be the refrigerator. I think this refrigerator has a very central space in most homes. I just don't know if like you're going to see tens of millions of like family have type of refrigerators with these big giant screens. I mean, I think it's not a bad idea, but I think that's kind of a limited set of people that are going to do that. I know you're talking about the GE large display GE hub. I think that's a pretty interesting idea. I think it's probably similar to the refrigerator conversation. So I don't know if I can pick a winner yet. I think it may be a mix of all of these and a lot of smart countertop displays. I think that, did you see the Whirlpool oven with augmented reality on it? I did. Yeah, I I think that could be interesting. Like, I just don't know if people are going to be watching a lot of television on that type of thing, but I do think like that could be like really interesting to manage a cook and maybe do some shopping on. Okay, and I feel that we have to talk about this. We have talked a lot about trends, but it's time to get, time to get in the now, Michael. So the wire cutter just put out a review. It was January 15th. And I love the wire cutter. I've actually, in full disclosure, I've worked for the wire cutter and done some reviews for them. But their headline, it broke my heart. June oven review, not the countertop oven you should buy. And basically, the wire cutters, Michael Sullivan, who I don't know, but I'm sure is a wonderful person who knows what he's talking about. He basically said the June oven at $600 is not better than their top pick toaster oven, which is the Cuisinart TOB260N1. So that'll stick with you. But they were like, you know, it costs more and it doesn't do as much. And their big beefs seemed to be that it was frustrating to find programs. I don't know if his food just wasn't recognized and he couldn't adjust time in increments that worked for him. I don't know. So I was curious your take on this because, you know, I know that you know the June oven and one of your, your colleagues mm -hmm. really loves his. I mean, I feel like people, when they do reviews, they project a lot their own feelings on what this means for like everyone, right? I think people are so unique in how they cook and have such specific views on what works for them. Michael Sullivan, I don't know him. I haven't read the review in full, but like I'm sure he's trying to extrapolate like how he likes his kitchen and like and what he kind of likes and faults. But you have someone like you, I think you have the June one, Chris Albrecht bought the June two and both love it. I know that a lot of kids love the June because it's very easy to cook with for kids. So I can't really speak to what his main problem was. I do think there's there are limitations, right? I think that there's this idea of like, okay, it's a small countertop oven. You can't cook a turkey in it. I also just think that there's this general Luddite feeling among a lot of people and a lot of editorial people that just reject on its face like more technology in the kitchen. They just want us to use kind of the old school tools we grew up with. We don't need more smart things. Let's just cook. This is the last makerspace in the home. One of the things he talked about was the camera is fun to use, but it doesn't make cooking easier, which rang very false to me because to me, it makes it tremendously easy because I just put something in and I don't know how to, if it identifies it, then I don't have to know how to cook it. 
Yeah, I mean, we all do this as editor people, right? But I think oftentimes the articles are written before we review things. Like, and I feel like, and I can't speak to this Michael Sullivan and his article, but like, I know I've had people write about things that you just go, okay, they had their mind made up before they wrote about it. Um, it might just be that he rejects the idea of like more technology in the kitchen, or he just found it, he didn't like it. Like maybe he was struggling, wasn't recognizing his bacon. Yeah, and I wonder if he tried to cook some fancy things, because he's talking about the camera getting stumped a lot. And I mean, every now and then mine gets stumped, but I mean, we can go like a month without it not recognizing something, because I mean, we tend to cook the same things. We're not like super, you know, souffle or adventurous people. So I don't know. This wounded me to the core of my soul. So I was like, oh, no. I mean, I think he has a point. Like, I'm looking at the article now. I do think that the main problem I have with like the June is actually kind of the capacity size, right? Like, it just doesn't have that big a cavity. And that's why I've just been pushing and asking and wondering when the big guys are getting in. And so, getting back to what we talked about earlier, having these big built in appliances with smart capabilities, I think it's going to really be interesting because you can't really cook a turkey. In a June, like you can only do so much with these small cavity appliances. And even the June built-in, like it was basically the, is the countertop in a, <laughs> in a built-in <Yes>. container. <laughs> uh, it wasn't really like a wall oven. It was more that you're sticking the June countertop in the wall. Yes. And I, I will agree with that. I do wish this were in my larger oven, these features, but okay. Well, I just, I had to bring that up and I am looking forward to your next smart kitchen event, wherever it may be. We're actually going to be at Houseware Show in March. I don't know if you go to that. That's a great show for countertop appliances. And then we're actually doing our own mini event in San Francisco on the future of food robots. Chris Albrecht and I and the whole whole Spoon team will be doing a food robotics summit. It's a very small event, but we're having the guy who's behind the Sony IBO. We're having the head of Google Brain come and just getting all these nerds in a room to talk about how robotics will change the world of food. And so that will be on April 16th in San Francisco. And it's called Articulate. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate you coming on the show this week and your future insights as I'm building my new home. Awesome. Thanks, Stacey. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 